epic stories and epic characters are easy to tie myself to, to relate to, but sometimes the stories of the women in the Bible can be unrelatable or, I don't know, just not as epic. But the truth is, is their stories are my stories too. And not just for a time past, but for a time now. Their failures are my failures. They're good, they're bad. It all ends up kind of being beautiful. It's a greater story and we're all part of it. All of it. The good, the bad, and the beautiful. Um, you know, over the years, one of the things that I can remember um, are people who have come to Jesus in radical ways. So, like, that happens in a lot of different ways. Sometimes people, like, come to church and an invitation is giving and a person makes a decision. Sometimes it's through a friend, maybe the way that they live their life or maybe at a point in your life where um, you were asking questions and a friend shared with you. But sometimes, um, through the years, there's something just radical that happens in a person's life. And when I wrote this message, I was thinking about a young man that I knew several years ago. He had come to our church, and I was a staff pastor in northern Colorado. And a guy um, walked in, and I, maybe the best way to say this is, you could tell that the guy was not a church guy. You know what I'm, what I'm talking about? You could just tell. It just wasn't his background. It wasn't the way he acted. It wasn't the way he, he looked. You could just tell this guy had had a rough uh, life up to that point. And came in, and um, I don't know exactly what was said or what happened. I, you, you never know how the Holy Spirit approaches somebody's heart. But something happened during one of the services where the Holy Spirit just really got a hold of his life and just, I mean, radically, radically um, changed this guy's life. And I mean, it was, it was such a, uh, a, a juxtaposition from where he was to what God did. He came in, and he was very hard. And in such a short time, God had softened his heart. So much so that the guy would walk in initially and would be so resistant. And then after a few weeks, he was hugging everybody like he had been there from the beginning. It was just one of the neat stories that I had ever seen. Um, because of his upbringing and because of the way that he had lived his life up until that point, uh, he had done some things to break the law. And um, when he came to Christ, I don't know exactly what, what had gone on in his mind, but I think he thought, because he made such a radical change in his life, that somehow the things that had happened in the past no longer applied. And on one hand, spiritually, that's true. We're not the person that we were when we come to Christ. He sets us free, and everything changes. But in another way, it's not true in that some of the consequences from the decisions we make, even when we come to Jesus, they still are relevant in our life. Do you understand that statement right there? And his past caught up with him. And so he said, hey, I'm facing jail time, and I'm facing some things that are really difficult consequences, and I want you to pray, because I really want God to do a miracle. And then we did pray. We prayed exactly the thing that he was asking. We just prayed, let the judge have mercy. Let the judge see what's happened in your life and not just what you did before that. But the judge, even though we had done everything we could to kind of show forth the guy's different life, the judge said, hey, you need to pay for what you did and sentenced him to some jail time. And, um, you know, sometimes when that happens, a person goes, hey, I get it, and I understand it, and um, I just need to get this behind me and move on with my life. But in this case, um, there was an expectation that somehow 
God would intervene. And when God didn't intervene from the consequences in his life, he turned his back on God. As radical as his salvation was, was as radical as his turning away from God. As hard as he was when he came in, and then as soft as he was, was as hard as he became again, and maybe even harder. And here we are, that probably was 17 or 18 years ago, and here we are after all this time. And I'd love to tell you the story that eventually the guy's heart softened, but it didn't. And he stayed in the place that he was, and a radical salvation was lost due to the consequences from his life. And the reason it's even relevant in this story is we're wrapping up our series on the good, the bad, and the beautiful, and I'm talking about Bathsheba. And I just want you to think for a minute, when you think about her and David, there was a consequence to their sin that God didn't let them escape, even though he forgave them and restored them. And maybe the nature of the message uh, this weekend is simply going to be this. That sometimes there's consequences in our lives, but man, God always, his purpose more than anything else, is redemptive in our life. He's always working for our good. Do you believe that? Yes. Even when it feels bad. And so sometimes there's just a period or a time or a, uh, I don't know, a journey of uh, trust and grace that we go through. And so that's, uh, that's where we're going to go this weekend. And um, you know what's been good for me in this series? It's really been fun, and I've really thought about this. I mean, I've taught the Bible for a long time. I've been a pastor for more than 30 years. Um, I've never taken the time in a series to study about these particular women that we've been talking about, and I've learned a lot. And so I'm going to give you five things about Bathsheba. I bet you didn't know, at least four of them. But before I do that, let me read uh, a little bit of her story. Uh, the main part of her story happens with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, there's a lot here. There's two, like, uh, two huge chapters, and I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. I would encourage you, uh, all of 2 Samuel is worth your time to study and to read, but 2 Samuel 11 and 12 would really be good for you. So I'm going to read a little bit of the crux of the story. Uh, I'll comment, and I'll fill in some blanks. And then teach from that. So it's 2 Samuel, uh, it's chapter 11. I'm going to read um, 1 through 5 and then 26 and 27. So in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. So David's supposed to go out to war with his armies, but he doesn't. He stays back in Jerusalem. Uh, his army destroyed the Ammonite army and they laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman, say the word with me, of unusual beauty. So she's beautiful, but she's unusually beautiful. Uh, he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And just real quick, those two details, if you don't know, they matter in the story because these two individuals actually are part of David's leadership team. David has 37 men that he leans on for counsel and for direction for the kingdom. And these two men are part of the 37. And their granddaughter and wife, I'm sorry, daughter and wife are these two men. So it's mentioned to David, hey, before you do anything, Think about who she is. Think first how she's connected here. They realize what and why he's asking, all right? So she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. And then she returned home later. I'm skipping down to 26. Uh, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant. Yes or no, a little bit of time has gone by here. She sent David a message saying, hey, I'm pregnant. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead... 
All right, so we go from her finding out to her husband being dead. What happens? Let me just fill in the blanks real quick. David's army is out fighting, remember? David's in Jerusalem, and the wives of all of his people in the army are in Jerusalem. David is up in the middle of the night, walking on the palace. He looks out, and he sees a woman bathing. Now, I heard somebody question one time, like, is that what all women in Jerusalem did? I don't have a clue. I didn't live 3,000 years ago. But it does seem weird that she's taking a bath in full sight. Let me try that over here. It does seem weird to me that she's taking a bath in full sight where the king can see her. So in my mind, somewhere, somehow, there's probably something going on here that the Bible just simply doesn't comment on. So David sees her. He's not in the place that he should be, and I've said this before. None of us are above what King David did. At the wrong place, at the wrong time, looking at the wrong thing, you can sin. You hear me? You can sin. David is in the wrong place at the wrong time, looking at the wrong thing, and he decides, hey... Who is she? They tell him. He brings her in because he's the king. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. Once she gets pregnant, they come up with a plan to cover it up. So they send for Uriah. It's Bathsheba's husband. Uriah is one of the field soldiers. David brings him back, and he thinks to himself, by giving him a furlough, he'll go in and sleep with his wife. That's the way we'll cover up the pregnancy, and no one will ever know. David should have known better. Uriah comes back. But he's such a loyal person, this is what he says, if my men can't come home to their wives and sleep with their wives, I'm not sleeping with mine. So the Bible says he slept in the doorway of the palace. And no matter what David tried to do, he couldn't get this guy to go in and be with his wife. So he comes up with the second plan. He writes a letter and he gives it to Uriah. And the letter says to his general Joab, take Uriah and put him in the worst part of the battle, knowing that by doing so, he'd likely be killed, and that will cover it. Can you imagine carrying your own letter that signed your death warrant? So he takes the letter, he hands it to Joab, Joab reads it in front of him. Uriah's such a good guy, he didn't have any clue that David would do this to him. He's put into the heat of the battle, and sure enough, he's killed. They wait about a week for the proper mourning time, and then David brings her into his house, and she becomes one of his wives, and he tries to cover up, so does she, what they had done. Then we pick the story up. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her into the palace. She became one of his wives, and she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Is that where it ends? Yeah, it ends right there. The Lord was displeased with what David had done. All right, um, let me give you five things about her that we, uh, we know if we study this out. Four of them, I bet you didn't know other than what I just talked about. One of them you may have. So here's the first one. Uh, she comes from a good family. This is not a prostitute. This is not a wayward woman. This is not a woman who doesn't, uh, doesn't know any better or is doing something that's, uh, that's in her character. This is completely out of character. She comes from a good family. Her father and her grandfather served in David's cabinet. They're part of the 37 mighty men. They're the men that David knows and that David trusts, and this is a woman that David should have been watching over and not taking advantage of. Uh, her name, when she was born, was not Bathsheba. Her name was Bathsheba. Now, I mentioned this last week, and this is important. When Hebrews named their kids, they didn't just name them like, hey, there's John Jr., or there's, uh, you know, uh, Beautiful Chariot. They named them something that had to do with what they wanted their character to be. When she was born, they named her Bathsheba, and that meant 
daughter of my prosperity. So when her dad had her, she was a last child, and he was at the time when he was earning the most money, so he called her what he thought of her, you're the daughter that came during my prosperity. But when she was 13, as all good Jewish boys and girls have, at 13, what happens to a Jewish kid? So they become, well, what's it called? What's the term for it? Okay, a guy has a bar mitzvah, but a girl has a bat mitzvah. Very good. You must have a good teacher at this church who teaches you good things. So at 13, a young lady has her bat mitzvah, and that means that uh, it, it stands for the blessing of the law. And at 13, they would have changed her name. They would have given her a name that reflected how they saw her now what they expected her to grow up and be or what she's already showed them. So when they change her name to Bathsheba, Bathsheba means daughter of an oath or a promise keeper. And I think that's interesting because later on, the time that we read about Bathsheba, she's not keeping her promise to her husband, yes or no? She's actually breaking the promise and the thing that God called her. Uh, third thing about her is, this is the one you probably knew, she's married to Uriah, David's friend and his advisor. He's great friends with Uriah. Uriah loves David. Uh, man, they've served for years and years in battle with each other. As David became king and uh, God raised him up in Israel, he raised Uriah with him. And Uriah, man, is one of his best friends. David was probably, without doubt, at Uriah's wedding. He knew exactly who Bathsheba was. And what he did, man, doesn't make any sense when you think about the relationship that David and Uriah had with each other. And yet we know that it happened. Here's the fourth thing about her that uh, I think is interesting. Man, the Bible says clearly she's not just beautiful, she's unusually beautiful, very beautiful. She obviously stood out because of her beauty. Last but not least, here's what I wrote about her, man. Uh, she's a sinner. She's no different than you or I. You may not have committed adultery, but I bet you sinned, and I bet you sinned today. Let me try this side again over here. I bet you're a sinner and I bet you sin today. Sinning comes natural to us. It comes normal to us. It's the thing that we do without thinking about it. And look, I have people that argue with me all the time. Are we really sinners once we come to Jesus? Uh, technically speaking, man, we're saved. But technically speaking, we still sin. You agree? So when we read about this woman, sometimes we read and we judge her. She committed adultery. She participated in murder by proxy, and she was part of a big cover-up. Just because that's true doesn't really make her any different than us. She's a sinner, and she needs God's grace. If you've got a pen or a pencil, let me give you the four things in this story that I think you need to pay attention to, be aware of, and that uh, if you said to me, Pastor, why do you think this story's in the Bible? Of all the stories they could tell, of all the things that this woman probably did with her life, of all the things that happened before, and of all the things that had after, why this story? Why do you think this is in here? And let me just give you what I think. Pen or pencil, are you doing it with the online version? Here's the four things. First one, just be aware of this. Uh, no matter what you think, no matter where you're at in life, no matter what you've come to believe, this is the truth. God sees everything. God knows everything. God sees everything. God's not oblivious to it. God is never unaware of it. God has never turned his back. He's never got his eyes closed. He never winks at things. He never looks away. This isn't scary. It's just simply true. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 reads this way. Nothing, say that with me, nothing in all creation is hidden from God. How many things are hidden from God? 
So that doesn't mean just the good things. It means the bad things. Everything. Nothing is ever hidden from God. Everything is naked and is exposed before his eyes. Those are pretty mm, harsh words. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are. What's the word there? All of us are accountable for our lives. God sees everything. You would think as a person who loves God and lives for God and believes in God, that would be one fact we would never forget. And yet there are people in this room who love God with all of their heart and they still forget. God sees everything. He knows everything. He's aware of everything. And we're going to give an account for our lives. Here's what I have learned. Why is it that people that love God don't believe he'll ever act on the things that he sees because God is slow in acting on the things that he sees. And this is actually good news and not bad news. Here's what the Bible says about God's knowledge from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Check this cool scripture out. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. So sometimes people tend to think that when God doesn't act on the things that he said, hey, this is wrong, we shouldn't do this. Our nation, when we think about our nation and the decisions our nation has made, how many people talk about, we can't keep doing these things and getting away with them forever? I agree with that statement, but this is more true. Even when we act in a rebellious way to God, aren't you glad that God doesn't lose his temper and respond to us with a short temper? Aren't you glad that he's always patient? He's always waiting. But here's what people tend to do. We think because he's patient, he really doesn't see it as all that serious. And we can tend to think that it's not all that bad. It's not all that important. It's not that big of a deal. And the truth of the matter is, man, when God promises, promises to take care of evil and things that are wrong, and I realize, man, if you're a believer, you're not subject to the wrath of God, but you are subject to the consequences of decisions. Do you agree? And just like my buddy that years and years ago came to the Lord and radically and mercifully God saved his life. He thought, now that God's done this for me, I've escaped the consequences. Here's what we think. Because God's been merciful to us, we escape the consequences of our decision. And what God is doing, man, is hoping that we will stop, change our ways, and not do the thing that walks away from him. Yes or no? Yeah, that's... And it's easy to begin to believe that when he doesn't judge something right away, that it's not that big of a deal to him. And it is. God sees everything, and the Bible is clear. We're all going to give an account for the lives that we live. Now, the answer to that is not, hey, I tried really hard. The answer to that is, God, if you put it on a scale from 1982 to 2017, I got way better. That's not your answer. Your answer is always going to be this. I need a savior. Thank you for sending Jesus. It's never going to be about how hard you work or how much you try, but you do need to be aware God sees everything. And ultimately, it's not a heaven or hell issue if you're a believer, but it is a reward issue. It is a reward issue. And God will hold us accountable for what we do in this life. Do you believe that? So it's an important factor. Somewhere in the church today, we believe like what my friend believed, that when we come to Jesus, grace takes care of everything. It takes care of your salvation, but sometimes there's consequences for the decisions we keep making. It happens. I know some people are like, Pastor, 
you're, you're such a grace preacher. How can you preach something like this? Because it's in the Bible. It's clearly, it's not my opinion. It's clearly in the Bible. I just read you, did you see it? We are held accountable for our decisions. All right, let me give you the second one. Scott sees everything. Be aware of that. Don't, don't fool yourself. Don't deny that. You don't have to be afraid of that, but be aware of it. The second thing simply is this. Mercy comes through repentance. Mercy comes through repentance. Acts chapter 3 uh, is, is an awesome scripture about this. Let me see if they can pull this up for me. Um, it's Acts 3. It's 19 and 20. Now, what's that word? Now? So I'm going to try to get when I point at you, you go. Now, Repent. of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. And then look at this promise. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. And let me just finish this. And he will again, hey, say that word with me. He will. Again. So that means they've already repented one time, yes or no? So who is this talking to? This is talking to people who have not done this for the first time, but people who are living in the consequences of some of the decisions that they've made. So he's talking to people who sometimes are facing consequences in their lives for things that they're still doing. Here's what he's saying. Turn from your sin, repent, because times of refreshing come from God. He wants to refresh you. He wants to fill you. He wants to wipe away all the stuff that's against you. He does forgive us. And he does restore us. And he does send Jesus again to us. In some ways, I guess that's revival. To have it happen again. Not the first time, but again. So let me just ask the question. It's rhetorical. Don't raise your hand. But you know, man, coming off a, a holiday like Thanksgiving, here's what we've done for the last three days. We have just taken care of our flesh, yes or no? So let me try over here on this side. For three days, we've done nothing but take care of our flesh. So now I don't mean like you went out and you sinned, although for some of you it probably was a sin. You probably sinned big time over Thanksgiving. But for most of us, oh, come on, come on, come on, have fun. Um, yes or no, you, you did exactly what your flesh wanted to do for the last three days. So, you know, for us, our office was closed. So we're closed on Thursday, and I committed gluttony all day long, Thursday. It's Friday... It's just the sin of laziness all day long. Chris is putting up all the Christmas, and I'm like, I'm hiding in my room. I'm taking an extra long shower. I run out to get the mail, and I'm gone for a half an hour. I'm like, I don't want to put up Christmas decorations. You know where she is right now? She's still at home putting up Christmas decorations right now. The woman has a sickness, I'm telling you. Just it's a... Christmas sickness that comes over her. So I'm having fun, but just think about it. I mean, Thanksgiving really is, not, not in a sinful way, but truthful. It, it's a, it's, it's a, at least a two-day, if not a three-day festival of just taking care of your... You, just, you, you watch TV, you sleep, you eat, you get up, repeat. Get up the next day and do it all over again until all of the second helpings are gone. Which... Guess what I'm having for dinner tonight when I get home. Um, and I'm not saying, please hear, I'm, I'm having fun, but it's not a sin to do that. But certainly all it does is, uh, how about this? There's not a great big spiritual growth in the last three days. And then you come to church and it's like, try to shake yourself. 
you know, that's the, you're, and you're worn out, like, <laughs> the sacrifice of praise, wow. Um, <laughs> and then hear a message like this, and you're like, ah, I don't, Pastor. Sometimes it's hard to shake yourself out of the place that you are. And I'm joking about something that's only been three days, but you know, sometimes our lifestyle can be something that we wake up and repeat every day, day after day after day. And we love God, so underneath is this person that's really alive. But outwardly, man, all we do is feed the flesh, and we're just spiritually lazy, and we're gluttonous. We, we just feed the flesh, and we take care of it, and we pamper it, and man, and all of a sudden, we just... Spir- Here's what we need. We need revival. We need God to send Jesus again and wake us back up. And we need to be filled again and we need to be refreshed again. And God's will is to refresh you. And so to hear a message like this and to think, well, that's for people who don't know Jesus. That's not who this is written to. It says again because it's written to people who have already made that decision. But man, they find themselves in a place where it's just not happening spiritually. Paul's recommendation is repent. Don't always just think of that as a first-time salvation thing. Think of it like when you get to a place spiritually, it's not just happening. The cure for that is not to get mad. Just repent. God, I turn away from everything that's holding me down. God, refresh me. Pull me out of this thing. Can I, um, can I real quick do this? Repentance is not something that the church talks about a lot today. Uh, we kind of make fun of it like, you know, we'll, we'll say uh, things like, you know, those old churches that were all fire and brimstone. I get it. So I grew up in a legalistic church too. And when you come into grace, there's nothing like it. You don't want teaching on the law. You want teaching on grace. Because we grow in grace, not in the law. It's where the life of God is. Um, but we never talk about then repentance and then people don't understand the difference between repentance and sorrow. God doesn't want you to be sorry. He wants you to repent. And so I, let me just show you the difference. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, just this is how God spells out the difference between the two. The kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. And there's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But the other kind of sorrow, wait, go back to that real quick. You're so fast. But worldly sorrow, okay, now you can go, which lacks repentance results in spiritual what? Okay. So there's two kinds that God talks about in the world. There's worldly and there's godly. Worldly sorrow is like this. I'm sorry I got caught and I'm sorry that there's consequences. But there's not really an understanding of, man, I'm going the wrong direction, and what I did cost everything, and this isn't the way to live life. It's just sorry that I'm having to pay for the place that I'm at right now. But godly sorrow leads to repentance, which pulls us away from sin and leads us to life, to salvation. Man, it just changes our life. God wants us to repent, not be sorry. God doesn't want you to be sorry. He wants there to be a leading away from the things that kill you. So David and Bathsheba, real quickly. Let me get back to this story. Um, She's pregnant. She moves into 
the kingdom and into the castle. And she becomes one of his wives. And they think to themselves, because no one has the courage to say to David, what you're doing is wrong. They think they've gotten away with it. And they think no harm, no foul, and will go on forever. And God raises up a prophet named Nathan, who appears just a couple of times in the Bible. But the first time we read about Nathan, he has the courage of a lion. And he gets an audience with David, and he walks in and tells David a riddle. There's a guy in your kingdom that doesn't live very far from you, who's really poor, and he has one sheep. And he loved that sheep, and he took care of that sheep, and he watched over that sheep, and that sheep grew up. And it was his sheep. And then there's another guy who's super wealthy, who has multitude of sheep, so many that he doesn't even know one of them individually. But he looks at this guy in your kingdom who only has one sheep, and he's not satisfied with all he has, so he takes the one sheep away from the guy that doesn't live far from you, by the way, and he kills him. What do you think should happen with that guy? David answers before he realizes that it's a riddle me this about himself. David says that guy should be dead. And Nathan, with all courage, looks at him and goes, you're that guy, in front of everybody, you're that guy. Do you think he said it like ran to the back? Like, what do you think? Because you got to remember, man, David's all powerful. Here's a thought. Was Bathsheba complicit or would she have lost her life if she didn't obey the king? I don't know the answer to that. I'd have to think because David's a godly man and Israel was supposed to be a theocracy that there had to be some kind of rule to protect her from having to do things he wanted her to do to sin. But somehow she did it very crazily. And so Nathan says to David, you're that guy. And David said that guy um, should die. So David stands up and he goes, you're right. And instead of killing Nathan, the Bible says his heart breaks before God and he tells God how sorry he is. Let me read this to you right here. Pull that scripture up for me. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes. And he will go to bed with them in public view of everyone. You did this secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, you did, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the, for the word of the Lord, by doing this, your child will die. It's a hard thing to understand. This is a very hard scripture for me to reconcile with the character of God. So the best that I can explain it and, and try to... Um, try to talk about it would be just simply this. Mercy comes through repentance, but our consequences of our stuff sometimes is deep, and God doesn't just simply wipe away the consequences. And sometimes, look at me real quick, other people pay for our sin. Sometimes other people pay for our sin. And when you sin... Here's what we're told today. As long as what you do doesn't affect anybody else, it doesn't matter. When you sin, it always affects somebody else. It's never to yourself only. 
it always affects the people around you or the people that you are with or that you live around. In this case, David was the highest level that the people could see of what a man who serves God should look like. And because of the level of his life and all that God had blessed him with, when David decided to to go against God, God had to do something that showed the people it's not okay. And it wasn't God who did it, but David ultimately who did it. And God didn't want David to feel sorry. He wanted David to repent so that he could live. So let me just give you the third one real quick. The reality of consequences. Sometimes consequences happen. And I'm going to be out of time for my message, so I'll do this just as fast as I can. Consequences are different than discipline. The Bible says whom God loves, he disciplines. Consequences aren't God's discipline. Consequences are a result of our choices. And sometimes, like I said, others pay for our choices. Here's the biggest thing that I could tell you about consequences. If you deal with them right now in your life, if you deal with them in your marriage, if you deal with them in your finances, if you deal with them in your health, if you deal with them in how people view you, how people think about you, if you, view, if you deal with them in the job that you have or the job that you don't have, here's what I could tell you about consequences. Whatever consequences in your life, learn from it and move on, man. Instead of hating God and hating people and living in the place where consequences are like trying to name you, just learn from it and move on in your life. Get beyond it. Because here's really why this whole story is in the Bible beyond what I said. Here's the biggest point of this. The miracle of redemption. God sent an F-16 to confirm what the pastor had to say. I'm not going to try to outshout a jet. Just hang on a second. They want the Broncos to win so bad (laughs) that they're going to fly around the stadium for 24 hours to. (laughs) There's the reality of consequences, but here's the miracle of redemption. 2 Samuel chapter 12. So it's the next chapter beyond all the stuff that we just read in 11. Um, Their son ended up dying, the one that she got pregnant with. But then this happened. Um, David comforted Bathsheba after the death of their child. And he slept with her. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And David named that son. Do you remember Solomon? The Bible says he was the wisest king that ever lived. He actually got to fulfill the things that David couldn't do. And God used Solomon in a profound way. So David named him Solomon, and the Lord loved the child. Um, Look, this is a hard verse and a hard story for me to teach on. Because like I said, it's hard for me to understand how the child paid for the sins of David. But he did. But God in his mercy didn't end the story right there. And in your life... If your story is right at that point where everything looks like death, here's why you want to get through the consequence part. Because God is a restorer, and God is always faithful, and God's plans in our lives are always plans for redemption. So when you read a story like this, you can't stop in the middle of it and say, see, look at God. 
read all the way through it. David did it, Bathsheba did it, but God ultimately not only gave them back everything, he gave them a Solomon in the middle of it. And Solomon becomes, man, such a powerful individual in the Bible. I think this is probably the most important thing. God's purposes are always redemptive in our lives. God's never about making us pay. God's never about if only. God is always the God of but now. He's never like if only you would have listened. He was always like but now, turn to me and watch what I'll do in your life. He's always redemptive. And we got to the end of our study time and the end of preparing all the messages. And we thought, man, the best way to end this series with all the things we had to talk about was to say, ultimately, God's redemptive. And if you're at a place in your life where it just feels like everything's lost, you just need to keep walking because God's always redemptive. He always, always puts the pieces back together if you'll trust him with your life. And I know when I say that, maybe some of you are at the point right now like, um, your loss is great. Yow. Like maybe losing a child great. Like maybe overwhelmed by the bitterness great. Like maybe your life's going to go in a bad direction great. Like maybe the difference in this message for you was that you just heard that God is redemptive. Maybe it's not how your life feels right now or how your life looks right now or... um, (laughs) what you're going to go home to. But God is always redemptive. And his purposes for you are always to redeem. All the way back in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, it says this, what the enemy intended for evil, God intends to use for your good. I would love to have a message that just says, hey, I'm going to count to three and I'm going to pray real hard and you're going to go home and you'll never have to face anything again. But that's not reality. But I have something better. If you'll let God work, not only will he put the pieces back together, what you'll have at the end will be greater than what you have on your best day. He's redemptive. Where are you in our story? What do you need God to do for you? So I'm not like being flippant about losing a kid either. It's maybe the worst tragedy that people face. And as a pastor, I've walked through it with people multiple times. There are no words. But I'm looking out over like our audience. And because I've pastored here a long time, I can think of stories of people right now. And I can think how God's worked in redemptive ways through loss and setback and disappointment. And as much as I just want to say amen and go, I just feel like I've got to stay for a minute and just tell you God is redemptive. Don't give up. Even if you can't change it, God is redemptive. He's a merciful God. He's merciful. It's Jesus. I know people hear this and they're going to filter it through the things in their lives that are going on. And for some people, maybe those things aren't as, um, aren't as life and death as others. And so for some people, maybe, um, hey, maybe it is, maybe it's physical, like health. 
physical, maybe like finances. Physical like a job. Physical like a marriage. Physical like a relationship. So maybe Thanksgiving only exposed the loss that you're feeling right now. Uh, Maybe it's spiritual. Maybe the place you're at spiritually is a place of great loss right now. Maybe while I'm up here talking, I don't even realize what I'm saying about sin in a person's life. Maybe something that you thought you controlled now controls you. A habit owns you. A lifestyle's changed you. And you feel at a loss right now. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe your heart is broken. Maybe you feel betrayed. Maybe you feel dead. Maybe you've passed through death. Sometimes in life we just go, why me? Why is this happening to me? I love God. Stories like this are in the Bible to remind us God is redemptive. Sometimes it's things we did and sometimes it's things that others did to us. But all in all, God is redemptive. And I want to remind you, man, as you contemplate what we're talking about tonight, God doesn't want you to be a victim in a situation. He doesn't want you to get stuck. He doesn't want you to justify. You don't need to explain it. You don't have to be sorry. God wants to rescue you. He wants to redeem you. And he wants to work a story of redemption in your life. And if you relate in any of those things, I'm just going to ask you right now, just open your heart to what I'm about to pray. Just allow the Holy Spirit to settle an issue with you this weekend and just to speak to you about the issue in your life. Father, for some of us, man, it's a time of, um, of loss right now. And whether that is physical, spiritual, emotional, God, loss hurts. Loss is a time where the enemy really tries to take advantage of us. Loss is a time where it just feels so easy to turn our back. Father, right now, rather than do those things, and rather than turn to other things to help us, God, we just want to turn to you. You are redemptive, and you are merciful, and you do want to send times of refreshing, and you do want to restore us. And so I ask that over your people this weekend. Restore us. Forgive us, heal us, help us, redeem us. 
work redemption in our lives, Father. God, thank you for loving us and for caring for us. And even, God, if we just don't feel it, we know that all things work together for them that know and love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. So work in us. And thank you for that. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.